This is Eric Golden, and today we're replaying one of my favorite conversations with OX Fubar. When I interviewed Fubar 11 months ago, the crypto world couldn't have been more different. Today, as the industry moves towards court cases and regulation, the issues raised here remain as relevant as ever. I hope you enjoy listening, and we'll be back soon. This is Web3 Breakdowns. Web3 Breakdowns is a series of conversations exploring innovation in the decentralized internet. Each episode, we will focus on a different topic. We will cover NFT projects, crypto assets, blockchain-based protocols, and businesses being built with Web3 architecture. We will talk to founders, artists, investors, and influencers to understand this emerging ecosystem. Come join us down the rabbit hole to find more episodes, transcripts, and a library of content to continue your learning, visit joincolossus.com. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions. Hosts and podcast guests may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. This is Eric Golden, and my guest today is OX Fubar. Fubar is a developer and an investor who writes a must-read newsletter called The Variable. In this episode, we discuss the trade-offs between privacy and compliance, how culture and law shape each other, and his views on crypto regulation. Please enjoy this conversation with OX Fubar. Fubar, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm really excited to have you on Web3 Breakdowns. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. For those of you who don't know Fubar, I've been a big fan following him on Twitter, his writing. I think that you're one of the most technically deep minds that's able to communicate in a way that us less technically gifted can understand and follow around. I thought a good place to start would be, how did you build such a robust kind of technical background with your career and history that got you to crypto? You're very kind. I come from a math slash CS technical background. So that's been incredibly helpful in understanding both how things fit together at the lower implementation end, but also the broader ideas of game theory and generally understanding crypto. My path has been a bit of a winding one. I started out actually in the machine learning industry, which is in some ways polar opposites of crypto. You've got huge advantages of scale, and it's controlled mainly by large players rather than individuals. Now, that's starting to change now that we see the spread of stable diffusion and whatnot, but was very active in the big tech machine learning world for several years. And then my transition into crypto came through the open source connection. I saw that competitors and builders in the ML space the ones that were winning over hearts and minds and attention and use cases were the ones who, rather than selfishly hoarding and hiding all their data and models and secrets, they were getting beat out by small agile players who put everything out in the open and built iteratively. That was a huge breakthrough that open source is the clear winner of the decade, if not the century. And then realized that crypto was open source plus open state open source on steroids, came in, started tinkering, saw it just as a fun little project first, where you could deploy things without having to worry about websites and backends and hosting costs and whatnot. 
just grew and grew from there. So been heavily involved across the DeFi and NFT space, and it's been a blast. At this point, would you say that you're full-time crypto, or do you still have a traditional uh, machine learning career? I'd say 2x full-time crypto. <laughs> <laughs> it makes you feel better based on the amount of content you're able to produce. Moving to some of your content, I thought a fun topic to begin with would be privacy. I was just having a conversation yesterday that I thought was kind of an interesting framing to get your take on that. When it comes to privacy, specifically with finance, there's kind of this trade-off between privacy and compliance. And it's always been, based on modern banking, just a very tricky thing to balance. What's your take on the role of privacy and what people trade off in the current banking system? Privacy is probably the most important topic that's still mostly ignored across the broader sphere. I don't see how crypto can scale without privacy, especially because what both proponents and detractors deem privacy is just known as the status quo elsewhere. When you go and buy a loaf of bread, the information about that transaction isn't propagated to a global ledger and stored irreversibly forever. There are two different angles on the conversation, one of which is how can crypto be made compliant with the Americentric KYC BSA AML regime that's been in place since the 70s or so. And then the other more libertarian or constitutionally minded approach, which says, how can crypto uphold and preserve human rights like freedom of speech, association, unreasonable search and seizure, etc.? Privacy is fundamental to a functional society, I think, in a lot of ways. You need people to be able to hold thoughts and associations that are outside of the current Overton window or current popular sentiment without being unduly ostracized or cast out or deplatformed as a result of holding those. Financial freedom is almost upstream of free speech because if somebody can't afford to buy food or pay for housing or hold a job to provide for themselves and their family, then ultimately speech is heavily infringed upon. Nobody can really say much of anything. To me, it seems like obviously you want to be compliant with all laws and regulations, but most important of all is upholding the actual freedom of the individual and the things that make a democratic, liberal, lowercase l, liberal society be able to work in the first place. I'm curious on your take of, before we drive into just crypto, if we just talk about privacy at this higher level, then we'll go deeper. I was thinking about your example of bread, because I feel like people have used that before. But do you think people have given up on that when they buy bread at uh, Wegmans or Whole Foods, whatever your grocery store is, their credit card company tracks them, their store tracks them, like that they've given up the idea that privacy on transactional matters. Now, that's very different than people would be horrified to show their neighbor or their best friend their bank account statement of how much money they have. But do you think people care about privacy in the way that you do at the population level? Most people, it hasn't affected them deeply yet. It's not a critical concern when it comes to what's the fire that needs to be put out, most of all. 
ultimately, it's a question of scaling as well. We live fundamentally in a different world in 2020 than we did in 1820, where now your actions are broadcast online to an audience. Instead of living in a group of 150 people, per se, your actions are broadcast online to an audience of 150 million. And not even a present audience of 150 million, but a future audience that's potentially much, much larger with different societal norms and whatnot. I don't know that privacy is an all-encompassing good at all times in human history. I think it is good that, for example, your neighbors know what you're up to. If you're a good person or if you're a bad person, and if you're doing helpful or harmful things. That's localized publicity. When you go to the grocery store and you buy bread, the people around you can know what you bought. And that is localized publicity. But then compare that to a transaction on a blockchain that gets published to 150 million people. Ultimately, that's a much more dangerous scale that can be targeted and weaponized. I think you need much stronger approaches to individual privacy, the more that tech scales interaction graph than you do in simpler societies. I definitely agree with you. And I love your piece on this topic just because I think where you started was what I was trying to poke at, that it's one of the most underappreciated things in perhaps crypto or even society in general that people don't worry about it. And perhaps that's an American view because it's not as worrisome or at least for a long time, it wasn't something that was on top of mind for many people, that privacy would be invaded anyway. It's a blessing, the things you don't have to worry about. I think a lot of people, especially in first world setups, don't have to have decently solid structures and aren't unduly targeted. You have this encroaching CBDC authoritarianism deplatforming culture wave that's coming. And I think the reaction to that has to be stronger and stronger individual protections because it's not necessarily the average middle-class person that gets hurt explicitly. It's the large, few unpopular individuals who potentially could have useful things to offer, but then tides get turned and there are these hidden harms of inventions or ideas or ways of organizing that never even come about. So I think the invisible harms that come through silencing aren't explicitly visible to a lot of people, but probably the most real of them all. Moving from the need with this new technology and the desire to try to maintain privacy, could you help us understand the current technical framework for what exists in privacy and crypto? So you have L1s like Monero, You have protocols that might do this thing called mixing to try to keep people's privacy. And obviously, these things can be used for both good needs to maintain your privacy, which people have a desire to do and elicit. But less about that, I'm really trying to understand what could people do today in the crypto space to maintain their privacy? We have a couple different levels of privacy, ranging from good, better, best, just based on how global and how default these options are. The best of the best and the holy grail are L1s that include base layer privacy by default. So what does that mean exactly? It means that you still follow all the rules of the protocol. For example, 
if you look at Zcash compared to Bitcoin, you ensure that double spends aren't allowed, but balances can only be viewed locally rather than globally. With optional viewing keys for necessary compliance, these take a general approach called zero-knowledge proofs, where you prove that certain conditions or constraints are met without actually proving how. The holy grail on that front is can you move from ZK proofs on raw coins, Zcash style, to ZK proofs over a larger computational state. When people talk about, for example, the ZK EVM, well, there's a word overloading there. People mean zero-knowledge proofs can be used for both roll-up compression, but also for privacy by default. In the privacy case, what that means is that you can prove that various smart contract operations when as they should, but without revealing unnecessary information about any individual user. There are a couple different interesting approaches on that front, still an active area of research. But one, for example, is Aztec, which is an Ethereum L2, where people can deposit coins into a pooled account and then direct their share of that account to use various DeFi protocols. For example, Curve as a DEX or Aave as a borrowing lending platform. I need to go look at the exact ones that they support, but adding new adapters by the day. You also have the anonymity set approach where people can deposit into pooled accounts and then withdraw later. That gives you probabilistic privacy. Let's go through each of those a little bit deeper to help us understand, because I think your knowledge base versus mine. And when people say zero knowledge, I still think that sounds (laughs) very hard to grasp. And I know it's a very complex thing to explain, but could you help me try to understand like, what does it mean to do a zero knowledge proof? It's a mathematical concept, but let me see if I can come up with a helpful, understandable analogy. The classic Wikipedia example is where you prove that you have certain information but without revealing that information itself. So for example, imagine that there's a cave two people go into and it's a loop, but there's a locked door in between. Alice wants to prove to Bob that Alice knows the combination to unlock this door. So what you can do is have Alice go into either entrance A or B, and then Bob can essentially tell her to come out of either side And Alice, by unlocking the door and passing through, can appear at whichever one that she's requested. You can prove that you know something without revealing what it is you know. The zero knowledge component refers to that you reveal zero knowledge except for that you know something. In the locked door combination case, Alice proves that she knows the combination, but she doesn't share anything else about what that is other than just this Challenge completion repeated many times. Applied to a cryptography context, what you essentially do is you ask a couple challenging questions of the prover and do that millions of times in a case that essentially the probability is zero that they would be able to answer all these challenges without the constraints holding. And then the question is, can you shoehorn what we're used to with coin transfers and smart contracts into a ZK framework. 
And that's why to you, that's the holy grail that you could potentially do that. And Alice and Bob could interact with each other. Alice wouldn't have to know it's Bob and Bob wouldn't have to know it's Alice. It could have just been like this box will appear at door B and the only person who could do that had to walk through A to B. So they don't have to know who each other is either. Yeah, exactly. It's very expensive to prove a ZK proof, but it's then very cheap to verify it. In a similar way that it's hard for people to find hash pre-images and Bitcoin proof to work, but it's very cheap and easy for people to verify that this is indeed a hash with lots of leading zeros. ZK proofs have similar asymmetry in the proving and the verifying. The question is just how complex can you get on the computational side of this? And how does privacy interact with a global world computer? Interesting, especially in crypto, because a lot of people come in with different assumptions than I do. You talk to them and they say, what's the point of crypto if you don't have full auditability? Crypto is great because you can prove that people hold the coins they claim they hold. Or crypto is great because it promises artists they can get royalties. (laughs) And neither of those were my assumptions. I think crypto is great because it offers permissionlessness and composability and open source and a host of other things that enable tremendous compounding innovation. A lot of times people look at accidental side effects of how things got developed and they think that's the premise of the system itself. Who knows, maybe I'm falling victim to some trap. (laughs) Maybe I'm making the same mistake and there's an even lower level. The question is, what is the purpose of crypto and smart contracts? Is it open auditability? I think that's a huge advantage. At what level of code auditability does that happen? Do you want to be able to see individual balances or are you okay seeing a ZK proof that system is solvent and that's all you know? In theory, to a sufficiently smart person, those are identical. But I think for the vast majority of the world, the leap from, look, public ledger and everybody's pseudonymous to here's a hash that can be verified if you run this cryptography script is a huge leap, even if theoretically isomorphic. It raises an interesting philosophical question of what level of approachability and deference to experts you want in this system. I would think, I don't know if you agree, that these don't have to be mutually exclusive. Crypto is great because it's kind of a fun question to ask people to figure out what level or how they're approaching it. You can imagine that the zero-knowledge track, which could be very, very special and used for groundbreaking new model that we might not even have understood the power of yet, but also that the ledger where everyone can see what they hold works for other type of economic or business models. So it doesn't seem like they're mutually exclusive. It may not be a deep fundamental contradiction. That might just be a limitation of how things run currently. And you're right, there could be side-by-side public auditable and more private setups. That's what we have today. 99.99% weighted to the fully public auditable due to how ERC-20s work. I don't think that's a deep fundamental contradiction, probably just a limitation of where today's tech is. There's still very active R&D all over the place. Ethereum's merged, which happened successfully a month ago, uses key pieces of cryptography that were only invented in 2018. There's a very rapid 
time to market on new innovations, new discoveries. It's funny because as you're talking about the difference behind it, I think of two things. One is that people argue with one one millionth the knowledge of you about each other with use cases and cryptos for this. And <laughs> this is why it's great all day and it's exhausting. And I'm kind of glad at a downturn that seems to quiet down a bit, even though it's still there. But then I also think about mainstream adoption and the average person never needing to understand how email or the internet works at any rudimentary level to use it. That we're still in this such an early stage of tech development. To your point, we're getting to foundational levels and there might be even levels below that. I think what's hard is that people want to experiment and play, but it's very challenging to try to wrap your mind around whatever percent of it you need to, to not just be taking blind risk. There's no question that we get friendlier user experiences down the road, still very much in the 1980s Unix stage where you can RMRF your entire portfolio. That doesn't work for somebody's house, for example. (laughs) I saw an announcement this week, don't know how real it was, but somebody had listed an NFT of a house this week. I saw that. If you buy the NFT, you get the house. What happens if somebody fishes you and they steal your house NFT? These things aren't very well defined yet. I don't think they get the house. Also, what's the point of the NFT? It has to get an orders of magnitude simpler. This is like writing to the base layer of Swift. We haven't built Fedwire or ACH or Venmo yet. We're still arguing about layer twos. (laughs) Very true. It brings you to one of your tweets that I thought was very good. This idea of irreversibility that people who think code is law are very dumb. And I know that you do a combination <laughs> of your shitposting and educational material. Let's walk through this idea of reversible transactions and why they're harmful. There was a popular paper that got published out of Stanford a couple of weeks back that put forward a framework of the problem is People get hacked and fished all the time and their stuff gets stolen. So what if we put in an admin key or a governance power to let neutral third parties adjudicate and return stolen tokens to their owners? This would fix theft by taking the stolen things back. On a surface, perfectly reasonable thought. That's how things work in the physical world. Somebody steals your car, then you find the car, then you get the car back. There are a lot of implications, I think, that are poorly, if not at all, understood by approaches of that. Certain people take a very top-down view of ecosystems. They look at something that emerged naturally over time, and they say to themselves, look, here's a problem. We should simply either mandate or ban X. Everything is good or bad, and so we can just mandate the good things and ban the bad things, and then all the problems will be solved. Because they don't understand why things are the way they are and why the good things are working in the first place and the bad things aren't, these are just highly myopic approaches. So in the reversibility instance, The missing piece of understanding is that when somebody gets their token stolen, the attacker doesn't just sit and wait. They dump everything for truly uncensorable money, be that Bitcoin or ETH. So for example, you have a wallet with 1,000 USDC 
and a mutant ape. The median portfolio of your average crypto Twitter user. (laughs) (laughs) This all gets stolen. Your stuff gets transferred away. What happens is the attacker doesn't just sit on the ETH USDC and mutant. They dump the USDC in the ETH and they dump the mutant floor. And then they have 15 ETH when you come around a couple minutes or a couple hours later and see that you've been hacked. Then people go around and they clamor for OpenSea to flag their items and OpenSea obliges. They can't really clamor for Circle to freeze the USDC because it's been dumped into a liquidity pool and commingled with other funds. Ultimately, any attempt to freeze or reverse these things just harms innocent third parties. You got the person who just put out a collection bid on the mutant They didn't know it was stolen. In fact, there was no stolen NFT at the time they put out the bid. It was just resting liquidity. And likewise with the Uniswap liquidity pool, it is 99.9% clean funds and a little bit of tainted USDC. So the reversible transaction question, letting alone the attackable permanent admin key and or governance just fails because the entire ecosystem has to be reversible or you have to be harming innocent third-party bystanders. And if you taking that a step further, if you're harming innocent third-party bystanders, then those bystanders are going to stop interacting with you in the first place. They leave your ecosystem entirely. What happens isn't even that some random third party gets hurt. It's that the third parties all leave. And so the entire ecosystem has to be composed of these reversible tokens now. And you have this intersecting web and net of any one of these could be tainted at any time and you don't know it. And nobody knows who owns what until days, weeks, months after the fact. You've recreated the horrendous system of credit card chargebacks. So then that reduces to centralized clearinghouse intermediaries which then deplatform those who don't have sufficient credit scores. Everything just reduces back to a centralized clearinghouse system. I really disliked when OpenSea took the stance of doing this flagging thing. I just felt like it did ruin a lot of how I was thinking about a marketplace might work. Because to your point, and I think it's worth diving in there a little bit more of, if the blockchain and transaction like you said is the finality, it's like sending a wire transfer, stuff you can't undo. You have to be accountable when you buy something. If you had held that standard and not got into this intervention thing, then I'm almost certain a credit card-like abstraction would open up for people who wanted that. It could sit just like how a credit card sits on the modern banking system. I'm not saying credit cards are good, but that's what it's doing. If you're uncomfortable paying someone cash, you hand the person cash, you can't get it back, people will opt for a more expensive version for the ones they can to pay with a credit card. But cash is still an option. Is it possible that layer gets built on top of the irreversible chain? I think there are certain use cases where you do need, where there is custodial risk and you need a third-party dispute oracle. For example, you buy something very expensive online. If you're paying with crypto, you want to make sure you don't pay if the item never arrives. And the seller doesn't want to ship you the item if you might not pay. There are cases, especially once you start interacting with real-world assets, where some sort of adjudicator is needed. The solution to that is custodial escrow, 
rather than implicating an entire system with reversibility. Ultimately, I think the problem of e-post, why don't some people use credit cards and some people use cash? In a perfect world, that would be the case. But there's a bit of a catering to the lowest common denominator. Well, first, cash isn't electronic, so that breaks in itself. But then you have bureaucratic systems that say, no, we're no longer accepting cash. Credit cards are 80% of our transactions, so we're just going to bump it up to 100% and significantly simplify things. So even if theoretically a system can support both types, there's often mode collapse where everybody gets forced into the common system. You also see it with home mortgages, for example, if you don't fit the prototypical W-2 employee structure, then even if your orders of magnitude safer than the average person, the, the system's just not set up to handle that. It's stripping out a bit of alpha for a lot of simplicity, but that alpha is real people who are stuck outside the system. So I think that crypto, by its permissionless nature, needs to avoid forcing everyone into one credit score clearinghouse determining factor of whether you can or can't interact. One of the things that back to our like I'd say much I think I'm gonna use now and call it the FUBAR Mad Libs is crypto is great because blank. As someone who participated in global markets, I saw crypto as a truly free market with a lot of experimentation of what was possible. And that was exciting to me. And that that would lead to a greater sense of accountability and lack of victimhood of what happened. I think one of the disappointments, specifically with Board Apes, just because that was a group I started with, was when Board Apes started getting stolen and people started complaining that they clicked a bad link and it wasn't fair, that that kind of got flipped on its head and started to look just like the world before crypto. While I understand it, the reversibility point that you bring up just seems to be such a central and interesting theme that is it your belief that we would just be better off trying to push forward a no reversibility and that if people are nervous, if you're going to go spend $100,000 on a picture of a monkey, you might want to use an escrow and have a delayed settlement to confirm that the asset is safe and good and the money will be transferred through OpenSea three days later after it's cleared a cooling process. These designations are more of a spectrum than a binary attribute. People love to call things centralized and decentralized, but that's not true at all. Bitcoin has centralizing aspects, even if it's mostly decentralized. Aptos has decentralizing aspects, even if it is more centralized than most. You see this drilling down into the Ethereum ecosystem, for example. ETH is mostly uncensorable asset. You have some tainting, for example, with OFAC designations or whatnot. And you have other things like USDC that are mostly censorable, but those actions aren't fully used or reserved for special situations. And then even intermediate cases where an item that's been flagged on OpenSea, that's almost an off-chain metadata trait that most marketplaces at this point blur gem, let you filter by. You can say, show me all the ones that aren't flagged or all the ones that are flagged pop up immediately and are generally at the floor. That's not even an on-chain trait, but it's a social convention through the cultural expectation that nobody wants to buy the flagged item because they know nobody wants to buy the flagged item. It's very circular, or at least like a helix. 
and even Ethereum itself was hard forked when the DAO was hacked. That's a one-time thing that I think is unlikely to recur again. Anubis DAO, which was a dog-themed ohm fork, was also hacked for the same USD amount five years later. And there wasn't a whisper of, should we hard fork the chain? Because it had just grown beyond the point where overarching culture was less concerned with it. So culture drives law. Even if your code says one thing, the code was created and adopted by people. And if those people decide they don't like it anymore, then they'll stop. Yeah, this is a perfect segue into another one of your quotes I like that culture creates law, law protects culture, and law attracts culture. Explain what it means about how law and culture shape each other. Law determines what people can and can't do. If you've got a law that murder and theft are illegal, then it's going to be very hard for a culture of murder and theft to arise because people are hauled off to jail as they do that. But similarly, laws get passed and enforced, enforcement being another key piece, by people. And if the culture is against a certain law, it gets struck down either explicitly through repealing or implicitly through non-enforcement, pardons, etc. Of the two, I have to think that culture is more powerful Ultimately, that determines how people go about their days and what they do and what they choose to focus on and what the hot button issues are. Take a look at nuclear, for example, by because there's a culture of outlying it that prevents experimentation that would shift that culture around energy abundance. The laws are so strong that the culture never really gets a chance to propagate. Now, I'm not saying that's permanent, but... They have interesting interdependencies. The super interesting topic you bring up of something can be legal, but culturally disliked and your nuclear example. Pertaining to crypto, it seems like you're trying to balance innovation and this rigidity of what people want or what bad people could do. So the murderer's example, society takes away the bad guys. So can you give examples of how culture affects crypto where the laws might not be fully written yet? Crypto is an interesting aspect because its laws are much more rigid than traditional sovereign nation-state counterparts. That leads to both narrower definitions of laws, the analogy being the state transition rules, but then less recourse per se, because crypto laws or state transition functions are necessarily narrow because they have to be such that they can be autonomously enforced. An example of how crypto culture shapes law. Recently, CloneX, which is the NFT division that got acquired by Nike, Nike's NFT division launched popular clones collection. I think they recently modified the metadata of a one of one to make it look exactly like LeBron James, presumably to give to him. I wasn't privy to the exact details, but people got up in arms that metadata should be immutable and permanent, and other people thought it would be good exposure for the project. That's an example where, in theory, you can point your metadata URL to IPFS and then burn the admin keys so that it can't be changed ever. Then there's a softer culture that 
enjoys the mutability and the control, and they've adopted a different convention where you just point to a centralized server URL, and that can be changed at a whim. That's an example, I think, where a, a more normie-friendly culture that doesn't care much for full immutability adopted a different law, quote-unquote, or convention for how things would be, would be stored and dealt with. I was wondering if you're going to go towards an example of this most recent Mango hack, this notion of, is this a crime or is this a hacker doing a bug bounty? So you have these DeFi protocols that have very large hacks. In this case, I think something like $100 million. And then the person who actually did it says, this is a very profitable trading strategy that I took part in and then kind of negotiates. And this notion of this person, did they commit a crime under a law? And that was a question. And then a follow-up was, well, how should the culture handle that behavior? Generally, when you steal hundreds of millions and get probably the most generous bug bounty of all time, most people would sneak off happily into the night and never be heard from again. Whereas this guy appears to be reveling in the Twitter follower count increase and making jokes about what he's going to exploit next. <laughs> Generally, people are more after the money, but in this case, he seems to be targeting notoriety in addition. <laughs> in terms of, is this code? Obviously, it was code that allowed him to do it. Nobody's disputing that. In terms of, is this legal? If you look at American jurisdiction, market the three requirements of commodities market manipulation, in my non-legal advice opinion, are easily satisfied. Then the question is, which trumps the other? It's this messy intertwining where you have blockchains competing with sovereign nations for providing economic composability, settlement, and security. A physical nation state's jurisdiction is defined clearly on a map and blockchains are generally global, but they intersect in unclear, poorly defined ways. Your point on this culture and law and shaping what is permissible and what's not. I think one thing, and I know you've mentioned this in the past about kind of this hero worship in crypto Twitter is that in this frontier land, people are looking for leadership and understanding of, okay, what is acceptable and what's not acceptable behavior. In a semi-lawless area, I'm very curious to watch how people react to actions like that because it's so brazen. Maybe how people read about Bonnie and Clyde or something where there was this interesting drama that people wanted to follow. But then because there's this such early phase of legal ramifications, I was just curious on your view of how crypto culture handles that type of behavior of this code is law versus no, this is not how it should work. The tools are very, very blunt at the moment. You've got a blockchain hard fork, which is extremely difficult to do, especially when so much is tied to real world assets, primarily stable coins that act as the second validator set almost. There are, say, proof of stake validator slashings that impose small penalties for malicious behavior, but that malicious behavior has to be detectable on the consensus layer rather than the execution layer. On the execution layer, there's Turing complete code everywhere. 
So there's no way to envision what people might do. Even ERC-20s, that's a social convention standard that got adopted. And NFTs, I'm not... Vitalik himself has said many times he didn't see them coming. You can't really programmatically encode all the silly things people might do. What does it look like when somebody makes a hex fork on Ethereum and then rugs? It's just such a broad space that I'm not sure if that's intentionally designed, but out of necessity, there is very large latitude given to code is code and extenuating circumstances are extremely far and few between because of the critical mass needed to organize culture in a specific direction. What would you do or recommend as some of the most important attributes to shape regulation? We need to move from registration and forced intermediation to honest disclosures and open accounting of finances and risks, which crypto does a lot of that on Etherscan already. There needs to be a shift from We've got a whitelist of whoever could afford the broker-dealer intermediation and millions of dollars of overhead that comes from disclosure of things for risks that don't even exist because of smart contracts to simple permissionless disclosures. Let's talk about some of the stuff you're working on. You do a lot beyond write this newsletter variant, which I highly recommend people subscribe to follow you on Twitter, but you're also a coder, an investor. It seems like you're always doing a lot of FUBAR. Tell us about where your area of focus is on and what you're enjoying doing the most. My current focus is on bringing products to market that hit so many of the missing gaps people still need. One of the more exciting ones to release recently is called Delegate Cash. Delegate.cash is the URL that helps people link cold wallet vaults to hot wallet burners that they can then interact with things like ApeFest tickets and Discord holder verification roles and governance setups and NFT voting, airdrop claims while being used as collateral in lending platforms. Extremely broad, a fully open permissionless global multi-chain registry that's designed for on-chain numerability. Big missing piece that I think could have saved a lot of the hack and theft problems that we talked about as reversibility is not the right answer. I think that delegation is where you have separation of concerns and even non-technical people can know that this is my safe cold wallet and this is my risky hot wallet. And most of my assets are safe as long as I remain on this hot one. I would say that is one of the most discussed things of people that own large NFT portfolios. I think a lot of people learned eventually just from the headlines of bad things happening. I want these in cold storage. I want these safe. But then there was, well, if you own this, you can get that. Or I want to go vote as part of this DAO proposal. And now you feel this horrible sense of I've got to move it out of my cold wallet to this hot wallet, expose it to this risk, then click the link, take even more risk. So this is a really interesting idea that I think if the way you're explaining it is, I don't have to do that anymore. I can leave everything in the cold wallet, but still be able to participate. Is that accurate? Yep, exactly. I try to build things that hit pain points I personally experience. And this is a recurring one over and over. I have 
a sophisticated level of approach on my security posture, for example. But a lot of people don't and don't have the technical depth needed to get there. So this is the way to scale secure NFTs onto millions and millions of people where they can explicitly know that this is their vault and this is their mobile wallet and they can take it everywhere with them. We had Fonz on from Token Proof for ApeFest as an example. Would you still use an app like that or would you be using this new burner wallet? Token proof is elegant in that you can link something and then carry around that link rather than the original. This is complementary to token proof style rather than directly competitive. You can use token proof to read your delegated hot wallet when you're setting things up rather than needing to pull out your ledger or something like that. It hooks into token proof nicely. It seems really interesting. I'm definitely going to give it a shot. Fubar, this has been. Awesome. We end every podcast with the same question, which I think you might have just answered the first part, which is what are you excited to build over the next six months? And what are you excited to build over the next six years? It sounds like delegate.cash is your near term. What are you most excited to either build or see built over the longer term? Short term, I would love to see delegate cash, crush adoption, huge network effects, save the ton of both money and heartache on the user standpoint. Longer term, I see so many opportunities. I think the pillars of both privacy and machine learning and how those intersect with crypto are going to be deeply powerful in emergent ways we haven't quite tapped yet. Awesome. Fubar, thank you so much for the time today. This has been a lot of fun. Thank you. Really enjoyed it. To find more episodes of Breakdowns or to sign up for our weekly summary, check out joincolossus.com. That's J-O-I-N-C-O-L-O-S-S-U-S dot com. 